Well, we Christians are often told to sit down and be quiet, that uh, we are on the wrong side of history, that there is an arc of history, and we are not understanding it. And so we feel a lot of pressure these days as Christians to give it up, just give it up. And it's interesting because that's actually really important to the text we're talking about today. It's the same passage that we talked about last week, but we have to go another direction with it this week. So Romans 1, verses 17 through 32, it'll take us five slides just to read the passage, but stay with me, okay? Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And that is to hold fast, to hold firmly, to hold down, to keep it away. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is evident in them, for God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Invisible things clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and godhood, so that they are without excuse. Because when they knew God, and they did, When they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, empty-headed, superficial, shallow. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they actually became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them over to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this cause, God gave them over unto vile affections. For even their women changed the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burning their lust one for another. Men with men working that which is shameful and receiving in themselves that reward of their error which was appropriate. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to an unapproved mind, tested and unapproved, to an unapproved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, Maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malevolence, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, spiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable. Uh, You can't make peace with them. They'll give you no treaty. Implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, and they do know it, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do these things, but have pleasure in them that do them. And that's where Romans chapter 1 ends. What we've just gone through here is the longest list of sins in the New Testament. It was a very long list, wasn't it? Here's what the sins look like, categorized by invisible sins that happen in the heart that you can't see. And on the other side, oppression sins. Sins that affect other people that you can see. And so on the left-hand side, unrighteousness, you know, depending, it could be an action, but it could be just internal unrighteousness. You can't see that. Wickedness, you can't necessarily see that. You can't look at somebody and see that he's covetous. We don't know. Uh, We don't look at somebody and see that he's envious or that he's lying. We can't see those things. They're invisible. Haters of God, you can't see that. That's invisible. And all the ones on the left are invisible. 
On the right-hand side, you can see these sins. You definitely know, at least you know, if there is any uh, witness, uh, you know that fornication is being committed. It's something that we can see. It's tangible, physical. Uh, murder, obviously, I mean, murder can happen in secret, but it is also seen. Uh, debate, this is just contention. I quarrel, I argue, I dispute, I debate. Uh, obviously, we can all see that. By the way, those three are underlined because those are the three we're going to deal with today. Whispers. Well, you don't exactly see that for the most part, right? It's kind of secret, but somebody's whispering to someone, so somebody sees it. Uh, backbiters. This is down-talking people. Uh, I'm talking down about somebody. Um, boasters. Of course, you know what that is. Inventors of evil things. Always scheming. Uh, disobedient to parents. Covenant breakers. Uh, they make a promise, have no intention of keeping it, or maybe they did have an intention of keeping it, but things have changed and now they're not going to do it after all. So these are the oppression sins, the sins that hurt people in yellow. And as I said, the top three are the ones we're going to be dealing with today. Interesting in our text, it talks about what God reveals, what God demonstrates, what he shows people. And two things in this text that God reveals are here in verse 17 and 18. In the first place, it says, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So you can see the rightness of God, the correctness of God. You can see it in the gospel from faith to faith. That is from one person to another, one witness to another. The just shall live by faith. So we see the righteousness of God. And in verse 18, it says, and the wrath of God is revealed. So you see, they're the same. The righteousness of God is revealed. And the anger of God is revealed. Both are revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, again, who hold down the truth. They suppress the truth. They hold it back and hold it away in unrighteousness. It's also very important to notice in the text that we keep seeing God giving up. And so we see in verse 24, therefore, God also gave them over. This is God giving up. God just gave them over to uncleanness, to the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. God just, God just washed his hands of them. He gave up. In verse 26, it's the same thing. For this cause, God gave them over. He gave up. Just give them over unto their vile affections. And one more time in verse 28, as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God just gave up on them. He gave them over to an unapproved mind. Tested, unapproved, I give up. And by the way, there is some crossover here, right? Because we were told specifically by Jesus that at certain times in our lives, we're trying to bring somebody a message and they don't want to hear it. So you just shake the dust off your sandals and go to somebody else. That's giving them over. Okay, you know, whatever. I'm gone. Uh, same thing again, casting your pearls before a swine. Jesus says, don't do it. At some point, you just give them over. Because if you throw your pearls before swine, what you're going to find is they tread them under feet and then they turn and tear you to pieces. So don't always just keep trying to say the same thing to the same person over and over again. This is God giving people over and he advises us to do the same at some point. So you see that there is some crossover. By default, because we are who we are, because God is who he is, and we are his servants, we are his ambassadors, we are his messengers. By default, Christians have always been the adults in the room. There's a lot of pressure on us as Christians to steer the world as well as we can. To impact 
American culture as well as we can. And then to have our missionaries impact other cultures as well as we can. It's what we do. And so in 1 Timothy 3.14, what a very, very important text. And particularly in this generation where the church is hated. Imagine how out of step with our current cultural narrative this verse is. 1 Timothy 3.14, these things I, Paul, write to you, Timothy, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of truth. Paul says the church is the foundation of all the truth in this world. Now, of course, God himself is the real foundation, and we're just stones on that foundation. But the church is the pillar and ground of truth. In other words, if you are going to be against the church, then you are against the most powerful force for good that has ever been in the world. You don't want to be against the church. The church is very, very important to God. And God says, actually, the church is the furnace of the world. The church is the core of the world, trying to set the world in a good direction. And without this, the world just goes cold. And so the church is very important to God. But by default, we, the church, have been the pillar and ground of truth. And that doesn't mean that we've done everything right. And where we've been wrong, we would like to confess that. And we admit that that's detestable. We're so sorry for the Christians who have misrepresented Christ. We hate that. But on the other hand, we are saying they did misrepresent Christ. They are not like our faith. They are not like our Savior. They are misrepresenting our Savior. And we declare that we say we are different from them we are not approving of that so we are sorry for all the bad things that have happened uh in christian history but the truth is the church is still the greatest force for good the world has ever known so we christians are the adults in the room we're like the parents wherever we go and people don't like that christians we are told are so judgy and that's exactly what a 14 year old girl says to her daughter uh to her parents uh you parents are always on me about something. And that's what people say about the church. You're always on us about something. Well, yeah, we are the pillar and ground of the truth. We are supposed to be the parents in the room, the adults in the room. Uh, you Christians are so critical. And that's what a 14-year-old daughter would say about her parents. You Christians are so critical. You always have something to say. You parents are so critical. You always have something to say. Uh, okay, here it comes. Or you just know it's coming. That's what parents do. We, the church, have always been the adults in the room. We have been, and I'll show you that as we go. The world says Christians should just lighten up and quit trying to tell everyone else how to live, which is what a 14-year-old girl says to her parents. Hey, lighten up. You're overthinking this. Quit telling me how to live. Get off my back. We are the pillar and ground of truth. By default, God has called us to be the adults in the room. And you know what that means? All the 14-year-old daughters don't like us, but we can't quit. They say, just give it up. Like, well, we can't really just give it up. Well, this matter comes up right away in our list of sins. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, murder, debate, maliciousness. Here it comes, right at the top of the list, that long list of sins. Being filled with all unrighteousness like fornication, 
When Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 1, here is the culture he was up against. Again, this is from Wikipedia. I hardly think that Wikipedia is edited by judgy Christians, right? So here's what the uh, people who just know history tell us about the world that Paul is writing in, uh, in Romans chapter 1. Greek myths provide more than 50 examples of young men who were lovers of gods. Pederastic love affairs are ascribed to Zeus, Poseidon, Apollo, Orpheus, Hercules, Dionysus, Hermes, and Pan. Now listen to this. All the Olympian gods, except Ares, had these pederastic relationships. Now, just in case you don't know, pederasty is adult men with young boys, minor homosexual relationships. All of the Greek gods except Ares were pedophiles. All of them. Paul says the world is so broken and we Christians find ourselves in this broken world same as in Romans chapter 1. Clement of Alexandria is on the other side. So you know you have the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire follows the Greek Empire but the Roman gods are basically the same as Greek gods and sometimes they change it up a little bit but not much. And so you might see all those Olympian Greek gods are before Romans 1 and then Clement of Alexandria he's 150 A.D. And Romans is about 55, 57 A.D. So this is after. On both sides then This is the culture of the world. Clement of Alexandria says, well, Zeus is wanted, you know, wanton, profane embraces of his mother, Demeter. You understand his mother. We're talking about incest. I do not know what for the future I shall call Demeter, mother or wife to Zeus. Which one? And the same Zeus has intercourse with his own daughter, Ferifada. Zeus is both the father and the seducer of Cori. And the token, the sign of the Sabasian mysteries to the initiate is the serpent crawling over the breasts of the initiated. And Baubo, a female hero, exhibited her nudity to the goddess, so lesbianism. Demeter, the goddess, is delighted at the sight, pleased, I repeat, at the spectacle. Hercules, the son of Zeus, in one night, deflowered the 50 daughters of Theseus. That's rape. It were tedious to recount his adulteries of all sorts and debauching of boys, for your gods did not even abstain from boys. So are you understanding this? This is the religion of the world of Romans 1. This is the religion. This is as good as it gets. So sometimes when people say, well, our world has never seen anything like San Francisco, that's just utter foolishness. In Romans 1, in that world, there was nothing but San Francisco. Nothing but. And that was their religion. So you have to understand, we are not seeing this for the first time in American history, perhaps in American history, but not for the first time in world history. Uh, Atheist psychiatrist. Again, not a judgy Christian, right? He's a psychiatrist. He's helping people who are miserable. And here's what he says. The foremost perpetrator of misery in the underclass. So the poor people, why are they so miserable? He says, well, I'll tell you the first reason. The foremost perpetrator of misery in the underclass is uncommitted sexual relations. 
the connection between this loosening of morals and the misery of my patients is so obvious that it requires considerable intellectual sophistication and dishonesty to be able to deny it. The climate of moral, cultural, and intellectual relativism, a relativism that began as a mere fashionable plaything for intellectuals, has been successfully communicated to those least able to resist its devastating practical effects. So in other words, he says, you want to know why the underclass is so miserable? I'll tell you, it's fornication. And he's not a judgy Christian. He's no kind of Christian at all. And he is a psychiatrist. He's dealing with people in therapy because they're miserable. He said, I'll tell you what the problem is. It's fornication. So God was right when he said, this is going to hurt everybody. You have to avoid fornication. Erwin Lutzer says, Christian pastors in Canada are forbidden to preach against same-sex marriage on television right now. That's really something. You're not allowed to say that. Don't say that. What gayness is God talking about here in Romans chapter 1? Sometimes spokespersons for LGBTQ plus say, well, maybe we're only talking about actions and not gay desires. But that's not quite right, is it? Because verse 24 says, the lusts of their own hearts. We're talking about lust on the inside, invisible things that you can't see. It's not just that homosexual actions are wrong. The desire is evil. It's bad. It's in their heart. You can't see it. It's bad. Verse 26 says, these are vile affections. Not just the actions, but the desires. These are vile desires. It says, and they burn in their lusts toward one another. That's lust. That's not good. It's invisible. It happens on the inside. And this is the sin. This is what God is against. It's not just pederasty. That is, gay with minors. It's not the point. Because verse 27 says, men with men, not men with children, men with men. It's not just pederasty that's condemned. It's all men with men. It's not just prostitution. Because again, our text says these are vile affections and lusts toward one another. It's not one-sided, it's both sides. And it's not rape or victimization. For the same reason, verse 27 says, lusts toward one another. Nobody's being raped, nobody's being forced. It's consensual. And God hates it, and it's sin, and it's evil. Tom Holland, again, he's not a Christian. He's a historian, not a Christian. He says he's not a Christian. And here's what he said. This is the reality. America was a country shaped by a tradition that for 2,000 years, that's the Christian part of history, right? For 2,000 years, had sought to regulate desire. Read that as lust. We're trying to regulate lust. This is why, beginning with Paul, the Apostle Paul, such a supreme effort had been made by Christians to keep its currents flowing along a single course. The change. And it was a change that had occurred with startling rapidity. Was the readiness of Americans to accept that the exacting ideals of Christian sexual morality might not be ideals at all. This over the course of the 1960s, had become a manifesto shared by millions. To many, it seemed that 2,000 years of neurosis and self-hatred were being banished. Desires natural to men and women, long kept in check, had at last been restored to freedom. 
except that the freedom to fornicate was, in antiquity, the perk of powerful men. Only the titanic efforts of Christian moralists had managed to recalibrate this. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? This was the message that continued to be thundered forth from pulpits across America. Implicit in the Me Too was the same call to sexual continence that had reverberated throughout the church's history. Sexual liberation stood condemned once again in the Me Too movement as predatory and violent. 2,000 years of Christian sexual morality had resulted in men as well as women widely taking this for granted. Had it not, then Me Too would have had no force. When the Bible was born, when the New Testament was born in the Roman world, all of the powerful men could do anything they jolly well pleased. And Christians said, no, you can't. And for 2,000 years, we said, you must not. And finally, we were heard. Not everybody, right? Because we can all think of Christian scandals when they were not regulating their impulses. But we all said, this is wrong, this is evil, and now you cannot be part of us anymore. We said, you must change. And for 2,000 years, as Tom Holland, who is not a Christian, says, we Christians recalibrated the world. And in the 1960s, they said, well, maybe the Christians are wrong. And so we started to go another direction. What happens then? Well, in 2018, Telios Research came out with these results. Early sexual debut increased levels of depression. What's wrong with our country? Say, what are we going to do about gun control laws? Here's the real question. What are we going to do about mental illness? Now, that's a hard one. What are we going to do about all the mental illness? And you say, well, why is there mental illness? Here's the answer. Early sexual debut, increased levels of depression, suicidal ideation, aggressive behavior, psychological distress, anxiety, stress, loneliness, poor well-being, regret, and guilt. It also increased negative social behavior, such as substance abuse and risky sexual behavior. In 2016, the New Atlantis did their research, and here's what they say. Members of transgender population are also at higher risk for a variety of mental health problems compared to members of the non-transgender population. Especially alarmingly, the rate of lifetime suicide attempts across all ages of transgender individuals is estimated at 41% compared to under 5% in the overall U.S. population. So you say, well, I don't believe all that stuff about Christianity, all that stuff in Romans 1 about fornication. Well, there's going to be a price to pay for that individually and societally if we don't believe it. William Malone, again, Medical doctor, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. But here's what he said. You can't be born in the wrong body. It's our minds that need treatment, not our sex. The mental health services will look back at this episode in American history 
as another dark chapter in the treatment of people with psychological difficulties. We saw three times in the book of Romans that God was giving up on people. He's letting them go. He's shaking the dust off his sandals and moving on. He decides not to throw any more pearls to the swine. He just moves on. And the punishment is God giving up on you. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and men who hold the truth on unrighteousness. The wrath of God is him giving up. That is the punishment. We've talked about fornication. Let's talk about murder. Let's again go back to the time in which Romans 1 was written. Murder. It was a culture of death that the Christians in Rome found themselves in. Zeus, their God, mind you, their God. This is as good as it gets. This is their religion. Zeus hung his wife on a golden chain. When his son, Hephaestus, tried to set her free, Zeus hurled his son down onto a mountain, leaving him lame and deformed forever. Or, in another variation of the myth, the son was born lame and deformed, and his mother Hera threw him away in disgust. I'm not going to have a child like that. These are the gods. Well, Cronus, father of Zeus, Cronus knew that one of his children would dethrone him, So he cannibalized. He ate his children as soon as they were born, but was deceived into overlooking Zeus, so Zeus survived. Niobe, queen of the Thebes, had 14 children in the mythology and boasted about them. So Apollo killed her seven sons. Artemis killed her daughters, and they turned Niobe into a stone that wept forever. Nice people. Apollo tied the satyr Marcius to a pine tree and flayed him alive for humiliating him in a music competition. Well, you should do that if you lose a competition, right? Zeus chained Prometheus to a rock and had an eagle peck at his exposed liver forever. Hercules spent his life fleeing from his stepmother Hera's attempts on his life. These are the gods. This is their religion. This is as good as it gets in Rome. Now, in all fairness, Jason and Media are mythical heroes, not gods. But here's how their story goes. Media betrayed her father by killing her own brother, cutting him into pieces. Then she used magic to convince princesses to make soup out of their father. When her husband, when Media's husband, married a new wife, he abandoned her, married a new wife, Media was so upset, she killed all the children that they had together, and then she burned Jason's new wife to death. These are the gods. This is as good as it gets. Now, the Titans, they killed and cannibalized Dionysus. And the daughter of Oceanus killed her father and made clothing out of his skin so she could wear it. This is as good as it gets. Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven because these people have been turned over to unrighteousness, fornication, murder, contention, and on down with murder. It was everywhere. Stephen Pinker, who is not a judgy Christian, he's one of the most outspoken atheists, famous atheists in our generation. And this is what he says about the culture in which Romans 1 is set. He said, well, the preeminent symbol of the Roman Empire was the Colosseum. Now, the Colosseum wouldn't come along for another 40 years after Romans, but same idea. The preeminent symbol of the Roman Empire was the Colosseum. 
Super Bowl-sized audiences consumed spectacles of mass cruelty. Naked women were tied to stakes and raped or torn apart by animals. Armies of captives massacred each other in mock battles. Slaves carried out literal enactments of mythological tales of mutilation and death. For example, a man playing Prometheus would be chained to a rock and a trained eagle would pull out his liver. About half a million people died these agonizing deaths to provide Roman citizens their bread and circuses. They said it's all about the snacks and the entertainment. Stephen Pinker also recalls what happened here in the New World when the pilgrims came over. William Bradford, a Mayflower pilgrim, left this account. This is important because people say, yeah, that's the way it was in the Old World. But interestingly... All of the Native Americans were very peaceful people. They were noble savages, were they? Stephen Pinker adds this uh, with his approval from William Bradford. William Bradford says, Not being content only to kill and take away life, the Native Americans delight to torment, flaying some alive. They're still alive, but their skin is being pulled off. Flaying some alive, cutting off body parts, And broiling them upon the coals, they eat collops of their flesh in their sight while they live. They say, well, you know who's not like that? The Eskimos. The Inuit people, they they were so peaceful. As recently as 1965, Robert Cleveland left this account, which again is quoted approvingly by Stephen Pinker, an atheist and not a judgy Christian. Here's the account. Next morning, the raiders attacked the camp, this is an Eskimo camp, and killed all the women and children remaining there, and I left out some of the more gruesome parts of that. Some weeks later, the Kobuk caribou hunters returned home to find the rotting remains of their wives and children, and they vowed revenge. Their revenge was they went to the other camp, they killed every woman in the camp and strung their personal body parts on a line and headed quickly toward home. So it doesn't do any good to say, well, the Eskimo people, the Inuit people, the Native Americans weren't like that. The world was like that. The whole world, except for Christianity. The punishment was that God would just give up on them. The people say to the Christians, just give it up. Do you really want us to do that? Because when we just give it up, when we shake the dust off our sandals, when we just walk away, when we decide we're not going to cast the pearls before the swine anymore, then do you know what happens? Do you know what happened in Rome? Do you know what happened with the Native Americans? Do you know what happened in Africa, in South America, in Asia? That's murder and fornication. Let's talk about contention. In Romans 1, it says, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, Murder, debate, deceit, malignity, debate, debate. You would call that contention. They just like to fight. They fight all the time. They're just contentious. They debate. They dispute. Recently, a student at Smith College, you know, you have the Ivy League colleges, elite, and then you had what are called the seven sister colleges. These were female-only colleges in history, that were all paired with Ivy League colleges. Smith was one of those seven sister colleges. Very elite, very elite. So this young lady, a student at Smith College, describes her experience. She says, during my first days at Smith College, 
I witnessed countless conversations that consisted of one person telling the other that their opinion was wrong. That's called contention. In Romans 1, debate. Always want to have a quarrel. One person telling the other person that their opinion was wrong. The word offensive was almost always included in the reasoning. Within a few short weeks, members of my freshman class assimilated to this new way of non-thinking. They could soon detect a politically incorrect view and call the person out on their mistake. That's called the call-out culture. I'm going to dispute with you. I am full of debate. I just want to quarrel. I'm going to call you out. And so they would call the person out on their mistake. I began to voice my opinion less often to avoid being berated. That's called contention, debate, dispute. And judged by a community that claims to represent the free expression of ideas. I learned, along with every other student, to walk on eggshells for fear that I may say something offensive. That is the social norm here. That's what Romans 1 calls debate, dispute, contention, whispering, backbiting, talking down a person. Here's what the New Testament sounds like. Nothing at all like that testimony we just read. Matthew 5.44, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. Hey, they said something mean to me. I'm going to call them out. No, you won't. Not if you love Jesus. You're not going to call them out. You're going to bless that person. And you're going to do good to him. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to berate you. In Philippians 2.14, do all things without complaining and disputing. We're not disputing. I'm not going to love contention. I don't love contention. And I skipped by accident. 1 Corinthians 13.5, love thinks no evil. Oh, I know you said that about me, but you know I love you anyway. Love thinks no evil and it bears all things. I am going to put up with it. I do. I put up with it. And love believes all things. You know, I, I want to believe the best about you. Yeah, you, sh- you shouldn't have said that to me. That was really cruel. But I just want to believe the best about you. At the bottom, Romans twelve eighteen. if it is possible, as much as lies with you, depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I'm not going to call you out. You know, we're good. First Peter 3, 8, be all of one mind. You know, try to be together here, having compassion. You know, I understand maybe, maybe you said those things for a reason. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Per, be courteous. Isn't that nice? Be courteous. Just be polite. No, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to publicly berate you. Well, that's not polite. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but instead blessing. Romans 12:19. Brothers, do not avenge yourselves. Don't call him out. Put him to shame because he disagreed with you. Matthew 5:39. Do not resist evil. Yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. You can't just be a fighter. Do not resist evil. Whoever shall strike you on the right cheek, turn him the other cheek also. For 2,000 years now, Christianity has tried to bring this message across. Do not be quarrelsome. Do not be contentious. Do not dispute. Do not argue. Do not fight. Your mother's probably tried to tell you that all the time. Be polite. Let it go. And now in our culture, what do we have? Same thing as always. We want to fight, fight, fight. And the Bible says that's just evil. Greg Lukanoff, Jonathan Haidt wrote the book Coddling of the American Mind. And they are not judgy Christians. 
And here's what they say about our current cultural milieu. The combination of identity politics and microaggression training creates an environment highly conducive to the development of a call-out culture in which students gain prestige for identifying small offenses committed by members of their community and then publicly calling out the offenders. One gets no points, no credit for speaking privately and gently with an offender. In fact, that could be interpreted as colluding with the enemy. So you get no credit for any of those Bible things we just looked at. Oh, no, no. No credit for that. You have to fight. You have to call them out. And then you get, uh, you get prestige. The number one best-selling book in the summer of 2020 was a book that argued that white people should be forbidden from saying certain things. For example, when you're calling a white person a racist, don't let that person say, you're judging me. Don't let them say that. Don't listen to that. You have to hold their feet to the fire. Don't let them say, you're judging me. When you call them a racist, don't let them say, well, you don't know me. You hold their feet to the fire. Don't let them get away with that. Say, yes, I do. I do know you. You are a racist. If you say you're a racist, don't let them say you misunderstood me. No, you you say, I I know you're a racist. I don't care what you say. Don't let them say, well, you're just generalizing. You say, no, I know you're a racist, and I'm not just generalizing. And don't let them say, well, that's just your opinion. Say, no, it's not just my opinion. It's the truth. And don't let them say, well, I just disagree. You're not allowed to disagree. You have to do it my way. And don't let them say, well, you're hurting my feelings. That's okay. You're still a racist. If that hurts your feelings, change. Don't let them say, well, I just can't say anything right around you. Say, don't let them get away with that. You say, yes, you can say something right, and, and I'm requiring you to say it right. And don't let them say, well, I was taught to treat everyone the same. It doesn't matter what you're taught. You're still a racist. And don't let them say, I don't see color. Say, yes, you do. You're a racist and you do see color. And don't let them say, I don't care if you're pink, purple, or polka dot. Say, yes, you do care. I'm black and you have to respect me for that. And you better notice. And don't let them say, well, race doesn't have any meaning to me. Say, yes, race better have meaning to you because I'm black and you need to pay me back. And don't let them say, focusing on race is what divides us. Yeah, it's supposed to divide us. And you're going to fix it so that we're not divided anymore. And don't let them say, well, I was picked on too and I'm not black. Say, it has nothing to do with it. You're still a racist. And don't let them say, well, I married a person of color. I have children of color. I can't be racist. Yes, you are still. Just because you married a black person or you have children of color, that doesn't mean you're not a racist. You're still a racist. Don't let them get away with any of that. And furthermore, white people should also be forbidden to use the term bad neighborhood because that's code for a black neighborhood. Don't say it's a bad neighborhood. And furthermore, white people should be forbidden to ask black people about their experiences and feelings because it's not the responsibility of black people to educate whites. Instead, the whites should go on the websites and read more and then they'll know. And furthermore, they should be forbidden, white people should be forbidden to cry in the presence of a black person because it shifts all the attention to the crier. Like, oh, now we have to feel sorry for you because you're crying. And lastly, they should be forbidden from silence can't be silent because silence is a defense move. 
It helps you maintain power and privilege. So you can't be silent. You have to say, you will quarrel with me. You will dispute with me until you agree with me. Unbelievable. Saul Linsky, an activist who trained other activists, uh, very important in Chicago. Remember, former President Obama was from Chicago. Here's what Saul Linsky taught his pupils in activism. He says, cut off the supportive network and isolate the target, the individual, from sympathy. Go after people. People hurt faster than institutions. This is cruel but effective. Direct, personalized criticism and ridicule works. Except that's totally opposite of everything in the New Testament. It couldn't be more opposite from what we read earlier. In 2019, following this line of thinking, activists protested nonstop for eight days until the first brand new Chick-fil-A restaurant in the United Kingdom was forced to close. Megan Murphy, who is not a judgy Christian, she's pro-abortion, pro-gay rights, founder of the Feminist Current, not a judgy Christian. She was banned from Twitter for saying that men cannot become women. And she was compared to a white supremacist. In 2013, Professor Val Rust was forced to resign from UCLA after being accused of racism because he required his students to use proper grammar and punctuation in their dissertations. Well, if you require grammar and punctuation, then you're a racist and you need to be fired. And he was. In 2017, Berkeley rioters assaulted and pepper sprayed students trying to attend the lecture of a controversial news commentator. One journalist argued that these students when they assaulted their fellow students, were not doing acts of violence. They were doing acts of self-defense because they were offended. In 2019, a megachurch pastor in Missouri stated that God created only two genders, male and female. An online petition was immediately endorsed by 1,000 neighbors to the church, boycotting the church from that day forward, just because he said there are only two genders, male and female. So interesting, isn't it? Our text says, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, they not only do those things, but they have pleasure in them that do them. And that last line is how the book of Romans chapter 1 ends. They have pleasure in them that do them. It sounds like the Apostle Paul was reading our websites, our woke websites and news articles, and he was saying that the whole culture is going to demand that you have pleasure in this. It's what we hear today. It's not enough for you, our Christian neighbor, to just stop censuring us. It's not enough for us that you're quiet. You have to congratulate us. You have to take pleasure in what we're doing. If you're silent, you're just being violent by your silence. You're dismissing us. You must not dismiss us. You have to take pleasure in our sin. You must congratulate us. You must go to the pride parade. It sounds like the Apostle Paul was living in our day. Remember, the punishment is God giving up. And in some sense, we, the Christians, have to Shake the dust off our sandals. Quit casting our pearls before swine. There are people who might still want to hear our message, and we just have to go to them. But some people 
are just going to get angrier and angrier. And so, like God, we can't just harass and harangue and rant. You give up. That's the conclusion. God giving up on a human being is a punishment. That is a punishment. And that's because of his wrath. For 2,000 years, we Christians have been the conscience of the world. We, not Rome, we changed the world and said, we're not going to have fornication. We're not going to have this murder. We are not going to have this debate, dispute, quarrelsome. We're just not going to do it. And our parents taught us and we're teaching others. And for 2,000 years, this is our message. We are the conscience of the world. Since the time of Christ, we have been the conscience of the world. And this is something to be celebrating. We're so glad to be the conscience of the world. And we shouldn't be ashamed of it. And if you're a Christian, stand firm. You are the conscience of the world. That doesn't mean you rant and keep saying the same thing to the same person over and over again. But it does mean you stand fast. You have a message. And if one guy doesn't want to hear it, the next guy might. Go to him. Can we stand and be dismissed with prayer? Father, we as a Christian family want to tell you today that in our personal lives, we want to do away with fornication, violence, and dispute. We just don't want to be that kind of person. In our hearts today, we are recommitting ourselves to this uh, fleeing from these things. And additionally, Lord, we are recommitting ourselves to be the conscience of the world. The world without the gospel is a very, very dark place. And we, like our Christian forefathers, are telling you today that we won't give up. We'll keep trying. We pray that you give us the strength to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.